Last week, we uh, surveyed Matthew 2. We talked about Herod's place in the Christmas story and uh, his interaction with the wise men, his great arrogance and his cruelty and the slaughter of babies that he carried out in order to try to eliminate the true king of the Jews. And of course, what led the wise men to the land of Israel in the first place was a star. Uh, We sang about it this morning. A star seemed to move and to lead them in such a way that Matthew 2 verse 9 says, the star went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And uh, I gather that somehow the light from that star shone down in such a way that it highlighted the place like a great spotlight so that they knew exactly which house to find Jesus in. The star led them to the land of Israel in the first place, and even led them then to the very house where Jesus was. But as we saw last week, what clarified for the Magi that they should go to Bethlehem was actually an Old Testament prophecy that was singled out and quoted by none other than the chief priests and scribes of the people. Those were the Sanhedrin, and the very same ruling body who at the end of Jesus' life would conspire with Herod's son to have Jesus crucified. So you have themes here that are woven through the whole life of Christ. And last week I read and referred to the prophecy that the Sanhedrin quoted for the Magi, but we brushed over it fairly quickly. And this week I want to return for a closer look at that Old Testament prophecy, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Micah, it's a hard book to find in the Old Testament. It's between Jonah and Nahum. Micah 5, verse 2, that is the exact verse the Jewish leaders of Herod's time quoted when Herod inquired about the Old Testament prophecies that predicted the birth of the Messiah. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it says this, "'But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days.'" That is, I think, one of the clearest and is certainly one of the most important Old Testament prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. It describes where He would be born, who He really is, and how He will eventually triumph and rule in Israel. It's an amazingly full text, and you'll see that, I think, as we study it together. But this verse and the passage that immediately follows it was clearly recognized in Jesus' time as a messianic prophecy. And in fact, even before Christ came, this verse was noted and studied as one of the clearest and most important of all the Old Testament's messianic prophecies because it foretold the exact town in which Messiah was to be born. And it therefore established a a significant credential by which any claimant to the office of the Messiah could be examined. If someone pretended to be Messiah, but his birthplace was anywhere else from Dan to Beersheba, you'd know this guy is a two-bit phony if he wasn't born in Bethlehem. And as a matter of fact, in John 7, John chapter 7, Jesus' enemies used that very argument against him. And this is important. Bear in mind that Jesus did not go around announcing to people indiscriminately that He was the Messiah. In all His years of public ministry, He revealed that fact only to a handful of people, 
always in private settings. For example, the woman at the well, John 4.25, says to Jesus, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And then Jesus answers her with a, a very plain declaration that he is, in fact, the Messiah Israel is waiting for. He said, I who speak to you am he. And that was really the only time in the recorded the texts of the Gospels, the only time he came right out and told someone in plain declarative language that he was, in fact, the Messiah who had been promised. Something similar occurred during Jesus' encounter with the man born blind in John 9. Only, only there, Jesus used a messianic title, Son of Man. John 9.35, do you believe in the Son of Man? And when the blind man asked, who is he that I may believe in him? Jesus replied, John 9.37, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. And then later in Matthew 16.16, when Peter says, you are the Christ, and that's the Greek word for Messiah, so you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, Jesus affirms at that point that Peter has spoken correctly. And those were all, think about it, all three of those instances are private declarations, not public announcements. And in fact, even though the other disciples obviously must have heard Peter's confession and they knew that Jesus had affirmed it, at the end of that conversation, Jesus turned to them and Matthew 16 verse 20 says, He strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that He was the Christ. On another occasion, Luke 4.34 a demon begins to try to announce who Jesus really is. Luke says the demon cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And that led to a number of subsequent exorcisms. And just a few verses later in Luke 4.41, Luke writes, demons also came out of many, crying, you are the Son of God, but He rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that He was the Christ, the Messiah. Mark 3, 11 and uh, 12 says, whenever the unclean spirits saw Him, they fell down before Him and cried out, you are the Son of God, and He strictly ordered them not to make Him known. So Jesus didn't go around making public pronouncements about His office, that He filled the office of Messiah. He simply did the works of God, and then He allowed people to come to their own conclusion, and they did. And that is what the triumphal entry was all about. When people greeted Him with hosannas to the Son of David, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, hosanna in the highest, and blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. What they were doing at the triumphal entry was expressly declaring that they believed He was the rightful Messiah, and He accepted the praise. And when some Pharisees ordered Him to rebuke the disciples for praising Him like that, He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And that, of course, strongly insinuated that Jesus Himself claimed to be Messiah, but it still wasn't quite the same as him just standing up and declaring it openly. He never did that. In fact, the only time I can think of where Jesus publicly proclaimed his Messiahship was at the very end of his earthly ministry when he was on trial before the high priest 
Matthew 26, 63 says, Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And that is when, at that point in the trial, the high priest tears his robes and the Sanhedrin pronounce him guilty, and the torture of Jesus begins at that point. Nevertheless, there had always been speculation among the people about whether Jesus was the true Messiah or not, because uh, John the Baptist, for example, had pointed out and applied messianic titles to him. That's at the very beginning of his ministry. And it's clear that one of the driving fears behind the relentless opposition Jesus got from the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin was they were concerned that the people would want to make Jesus their Messiah. And in effect, that would depose them from their place of power. And as a matter of fact, the Sanhedrin at one point more or less admitted that this was at the heart of their hatred for Jesus. John eleven forty eight. 48, they said, if we let Him go on like this, everyone will believe in Him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So the ruling Jewish leaders were eager to discredit Jesus and to demonstrate that He lacked the credentials of the Messiah. They knew, of course, that He came from Galilee, and because that's where He grew up. He certainly spoke with a Galilean accent, as we saw last week. Matthew 2.23 says of Him, He shall be called a Nazarene. And very early in Jesus' ministry, Philip, who was uh, following John the Baptist's lead, told Nathanael in John 1.46, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, which is to say, we have found the Messiah. And then Philip goes on to name him Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And you remember Nathanael's reply? He said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So it was well known by everyone that Jesus was a Nazarene, He came from Galilee, not Bethlehem, and apparently some of the Pharisees, not knowing anything about Jesus, supposed that Nazareth must have also been Jesus' birthplace, and so they challenged Him on that basis. And in John chapter 7, we're given a window into the conflict over this very issue. And, and if you've already turned to Micah, put a marker there because it is hard to find. And look with me at John 7, because this is interesting. John chapter 7, starting in verse 25, when the people saw Jesus openly teaching in the temple, even though they knew that the Pharisees wanted to kill Him, some of the people said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here He is speaking openly, and they say nothing to Him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Now, they were wrong in thinking that no one would know where Messiah would come from, but these were common people. They were not Old Testament scholars. So Jesus says, you know me, and you do know where I come from. And He declares then that He is from God. I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me." Now, 
They knew that was true because they had seen Jesus do so many miracles. And so, verse 31, many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? And then, predictably, that sets the Pharisees into a rage. They'd already been trying to arrest Jesus and and more or less quietly trying to remove his influence, but they hadn't been able to lay hand on him, verse 30. And now here he is on their turf in the temple grounds, openly teaching, and people are speaking of him in messianic terms. So, verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. But Jesus keeps teaching, and he's using messianic imagery himself. Verse 38, whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And that only inflames the speculation about His being the Messiah. Verse 40, some of the people began to speculate about whether Jesus was the great prophet Moses spoke about. In verse 41, others boldly stated that He must be the Messiah, described in the Old Testament prophets. But still there was this contingent, probably led by some Pharisees, who said, verses 41 and 42, "'Is the Christ to come from Galilee?' Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Now, they are clearly referring to our text in Micah, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which does indeed plainly say that when the Messiah came, He would be born in Bethlehem. And if they had known Christ better, they would have known that He did, in fact, fit that qualification perfectly. Bethlehem was His birthplace, even though He made His childhood home in Galilee. By the way, that's if you don't know the geography of the Holy Land, that's like 75 miles difference, far away. So now back to Micah, and I hope you can easily see that This was an important messianic prophecy, and and it was recognized as such by the scholars and religious leaders of Jesus' time, even before His birth. And so His birth in Bethlehem is actually one of 50 or more key elements of Old Testament prophecy that were perfectly fulfilled by Christ. And moreover, here was a fulfillment of a key messianic credential that could not possibly have been engineered by human scheming. Joseph and Mary would never have gone to Bethlehem at all at the time of Jesus' birth if it were not for a decree from Caesar Augustus that made the journey to Bethlehem an absolute necessity for them, an inconvenient necessity too, because she was obviously about to deliver. So this was an extreme hardship for Joseph and Mary to be sure, but like most of the hardships that we all face as believers, it was orchestrated by God for an infinitely greater good. We need to remember that when we're confronted by the inconveniences of life. This was a huge inconvenience for Joseph and Mary, but it was a matter of eternal importance and and a key proof that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. Now, I want to show you the significance of Micah's prophecy in the context where it's given to us. Micah prophesied close to the same time as Isaiah. He was a younger contemporary of Isaiah's, and Micah lived through a 
a time of great difficulty and serious political and economic trouble in Israel. Uh, Micah's career spanned the reign of Hezekiah and at least two other kings in Judah. Hezekiah was perhaps the best king ever to sit on David's throne after the division of the kingdom. And this was, by the way, the southern kingdom known as Judah. The northern kingdom, Israel, was entirely apostate. Uh, And bear in mind that the northern kingdom, Israel, never had a single righteous ruler. All of their kings were bad. And the southern kingdom, where where Micah lived and prophesied, had a sort of checkered history. They had a few good kings and lots of bad ones, and even the good kings sometimes did bad things. At one point during the reign of Hezekiah, Micah collected his prophecies and wrote them out, and and thus we have this book in our canon. The prophet Jeremiah actually refers to it in Jeremiah 26, verse 18, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah the king of Judah, and said to all the people of Judah, thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. So that's how Jeremiah just summarized Micah's prophecy. It was primarily a foretelling of destruction and judgment against Judah, the southern kingdom, and the judgment Micah had written about and prophesied about came uh, a little more than a hundred years after Micah had died, when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem, captured the king of Judah, sent the inhabitants of Judah off in what we know as the Babylonian captivity. And so if you're interested in the timeline, it's impossible to pin down the exact start and end dates of Micah's prophecy, but he started his ministry sometime after 750 B.C., so he's nearly 800 years before Christ, and he seems to have passed from the scene before 710. The MacArthur Study Bible estimates that this book, Micah, was written about 735 B.C. So to put that in perspective, remember that the Babylonian captivity began about 130 years later in 605 B.C., and I believe most of the destruction and judgment Micah foretold pertains to Nebuchadnezzar's time and the beginning of the Babylonian captivity. Look, for example, at the passage that leads up to our text. In fact, let's start back in chapter 3 of Micah. And here Micah is interspersing threats of judgment with promises of redemption, and the sequence is clear even if the timing isn't specific. Chapter 3 is a a long lamentation about the wickedness of Israel's rulers, especially how they corrupted justice, hated good, and loved evil, verse 3, chapter 3. And then chapter 3 lays out the charges against these wicked leaders, closing with this pronouncement, verse 12 of chapter 3, "'Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height." Total destruction, complete and utter ruin. It couldn't be more bleak. But then look with me at this. Chapter 4 describes the peace and fruitfulness of the millennial kingdom including that famous statement in verse 3, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. 
Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That's clearly speaking about a miracle of national redemption that would come at an unspecified time after the judgment described in chapter 3. But then, at the end of chapter 4, Micah brings his prophecy back to the more immediate future, and the theme is judgment and hardship again. Verse 9 is the turning point. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished, that pain sees you like a a woman in labor? And the final four verses of chapter 4 stress that God's judgment against the unfaithfulness of Israel is merely a, a prelude to what would be the greatest blessing of all. The Lord has a plan, and according to verse 12, a time will come, Micah says, when Zion will emerge triumphant, verse 13, and peoples shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. And that brings us to the immediate context of our verse. Chapter 5, verse 1 is a call to battle, and this is clearly describing a battle that will prove costly to Judah. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they shall strike the judge of Israel on the cheek." Now commentators are divided on what that text refers to. Some some think that's a, a reference to the famous siege of Jerusalem that occurred during Micah's lifetime when, according to 2 Kings 18, the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, came with great armies and ravaged all of the land of Judah, laid siege to Jerusalem, and utterly humiliated King Hezekiah. Hezekiah paid him off with gold that had been stripped from the temple. But then a year later, Sennacherib sent a vile and insulting message to Hezekiah in which he threatened to destroy Judah completely and and make the people eat their own bodily waste and drink their own urine. And I won't read you that passage, but... But the full story is in 2 Kings 18, and in the end, the Lord intervenes supernaturally and just defeats Sennacherib's armies without any help whatsoever from the armies of Judah. 2 Kings 19 verses 34 and 35 tells us what happened, and I love this chapter of the story. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. That's a lot of dead bodies, 185,000. Then Sennacherib, Sennacherib king, of his, uh, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. So he basically just folds up and goes home after making these bold threats against Jerusalem. And that brought a quick end to the threat. And some commentators say the siege of Jerusalem by Sennacherib is what Micah chapter 5 verse 1 refers to. I don't think so. I think this is a prophecy that looks beyond Hezekiah's era, uh, at least another hundred years into the future, and it foretells what Nebuchadnezzar would do to the last king of Judah, a king named Zedekiah. Look again at Micah 5, verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. The judge of Israel is a reference to their king. Smiting someone on the cheek was an insult. Smiting someone on the cheek with a rod added injury to the insult. And that is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar did to Zedekiah 
when he sent all of Israel into captivity. According to 2 Kings 24, verses 18 through 20, Nebuchadnezzar had tried to set Zedekiah up as a puppet king, leaving him in Judah and just serving Nebuchadnezzar. But Zedekiah, who was both wicked and dumb, rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. And 2 Kings 25 describes Nebuchadnezzar's reaction. In the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. And that, I am convinced, was the siege that Micah is prophesying in Micah 5, verse 1. Listen to 2 Kings 25, verses 6 through 9. Nebuchadnezzar's armies captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, and he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. Verse 25 says, so Judah was taken into exile out of its land. That's the beginning of the Babylonian captivity. And that represented the final catastrophic failure of the Davidic line of kings in Judah. No earthly king has ever sat on David's throne from that day until now. Zedekiah was, he really epitomized the worst of that line of kings, and his defeat represents the low point in the Davidic dynasty. And more than the low point, it was the end of it as far as human history is concerned. And so you might expect Micah chapter 5 verse 1 to be followed then by another long lamentation and, and an expression of intense woe, right? This is really bad news. But instead, what we have is this glorious messianic promise. It's one of the great Old Testament texts about the event that we celebrate at Christmas. Micah's prophecy about the end of the Davidic dynasty and the backslidden nation of Judah, therefore, leads us to this amazing prophecy about the one who would restore the throne and build an even greater messianic kingdom. And so what I want to do this morning is walk through the actual text with you and point out its key elements in a kind of overview fashion, and then we'll outline the prophecy that's given to us in this text with three things about Christ that I hope you can keep in mind through this holiday season. So look once more at our text, phrase by phrase. First, notice the conjunction that links it to the preceding prophecy about the collapse of the Davidic dynasty, verse 1. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek, but... And that but, that conjunction, is monumental. After any prophecy of doom or judgment, it's always nice to hear the word but, because it signifies a radical change of direction. When Christ says to the wicked in the end, depart from me, all you workers of evil, there's not going to be any ifs, ands, or buts. But in this case, the word but ends the prophecy of judgment and introduces 
a promise that is infinitely more profound in its glory than all the measures of woe that were filled up in the catastrophe of the Babylonian captivity. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, the town is called that to distinguish it from a different Bethlehem, spoken of in Joshua 19, verse 5. The other Bethlehem was the was in the territory belonging to Zebulun. Bethlehem means house of bread, which is fitting for the birthplace of the bread of life. Ephrathah means fruitful, but the name is derived from the Ephrathites, which was a clan of the tribe of Judah who owned the land around Bethlehem. That was David's clan. According to 1 Samuel 17, verse 12, David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. So there was no question about what town Micah's prophecy referred to. Bethlehem Ephrathah is none other than David's hometown. So it's fitting and not entirely unexpected, but this prophecy makes it official that the greatest of all Israel's rulers and the ultimate heir to David's throne was going to come from that same town, David's hometown. Obviously, a A promise like that would be uplifting to the heart of any true believer. You, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, and that expression emphasizes the humbleness and insignificance of that town. Although it was small, Bethlehem had a long and interesting history in the Bible. This is where Rachel was buried. It's where Naomi and Ruth settled when Naomi came back from Moab. And in fact, one of the lesser-known judges, Isban, was from Bethlehem and was buried there. So this town had a history, but it was a humble and unimpressive place, and it still is even to this day. You, O Bethlehem, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. And now we begin to hear the clear messianic significance of the text. This is a special ruler, one, the one who is to be ruler in Israel, a special ruler. And we know it from the final phrase of the verse, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. There's a a deliberate and clear note of eternity in that expression. This is the kind of terminology that is reserved for language about God. The term of old is idiomatic as a reference to eternity. When you see that in Scripture, of old, you're talking about eternity past. That expression is used in Proverbs 8, 22 and 23. The speaker here is a personification of wisdom, which means this is really symbolic of Christ, and the proverb says this, "'The Lord possessed me at the beginning of His work, the first of His acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth.'" So you get the significance of that expression, of old. It's speaking of eternity past. And this is one of the greatest clues we have from the Old Testament about the deity of the Messiah. Micah is using language normally reserved to describe God, and he is speaking about this coming ruler, the consummate king, the redeemer of David's dynasty, the true fulfillment of every promise in the Davidic covenant, and I think there's a very large and deliberate hint here that the Messiah would be God incarnate. So there's a progression in the verse that takes us from the idea of humble insignificance to that which is of eternal and infinite significance, someone 
the one whose goings forth have been from eternity. And that's how I think in, the, in these few short words, Micah gives us actually three different aspects of the Messiah. Put them together and you have a full-orbed description of the glory of Christ. So I want to show you these three perspectives. What are they? First, we see a glimpse of Christ in His humility as a man, born in an insignificant setting without the usual trappings of royalty. Second, we see Christ in His power as a king, the, the one who was to be ruler in Israel, and the verses that follow make clear that He will be a perfect, unconquerable ruler who, in the words of verse 4, shall be great to the ends of the earth. And then third, we see Him in His majesty as God, the one who inhabits eternity. And I, I want to look at each of those facets of Christ's glory with you this morning. Okay, that was my introduction. And as is often the case with me, the introduction is much longer than the rest is going to be. So buckle up and let's look at these three pictures of the Messiah, each of which give us insight into His character. First, He is a humble man. Now, don't miss this. Both the Messiah's humanity and His humility are underscored by the announcement of where He would be born. The fact that He would come from Bethlehem clearly signifies that He would be born there as an infant. Both Matthew 2 verse 6 and John 7 verse 42 reveal that this is precisely how the leading scholars of Jesus' day, the Old Testament scholars, this is how they understood Micah's prophecy. It's about the Messiah's birthplace. Now, obviously, His humanity is assumed rather than explicitly declared in a promise like that. Many other messianic promises describe Him as the seed of Abraham, the offspring of David, the rod of Jesse, the son of man, and similar expressions. It was well known that He would come from David's bloodline, and therefore no one would ever have doubted or questioned His humanity. So it wasn't really necessary to declare that fact explicitly. It was sufficient to name His birthplace. And the humble humanity of the Messiah is clearly an important aspect of this prophecy. Born in this fairly obscure town, whose only real claim to fame is that it was the birthplace of David, who himself rose from humble obscurity to be king of Israel in somewhat better times, and it's saying the Messiah will arise in a similar fashion. Now, we've studied the humanity of Christ several times over the years here in Grace Life. I intend to come back to that, that issue before the year is over. I've done at least two or three messages stressing the true and full humanity of Christ. Uh, I think Don Green taught on that subject when he was here. Jesus' humanity, of course, is one of the central themes of Christmas, the incarnation, that Christ divested Himself of His heavenly glory and came to earth in the most humble of circumstances. In the words of Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8, though He was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Think about what it's saying there. It was humbling enough for God to step out of heaven and enter the world of human men as a man, but He kept humbling Himself until He literally could not have been humbled anymore. He didn't come to earth 
in an exalted fashion, like you might expect of a king, much less an incarnate God. Instead, he made himself a servant, the lowly son of a working man in a family too poor and too lacking in clout to find adequate accommodations on the night of his birth. And you know, in Mary's condition, you might, you might think any compassionate woman in town would have gladly welcomed her into the warmth and privacy of a home, but no one did. The only place Jesus' parents could find to lay their newborn son was a filthy feeding trough for cattle. Jesus humbled himself then throughout his entire life, serving others, working the works of God obediently, becoming obedient even to the point of death. And it was not the celebrated death of a beloved king, it was the most painful, ignominious, humiliating death the cruelest executioners of Rome could possibly devise. If you could single out one expression to sum up the whole character of Christ's life as a man, I think it would be righteousness, perfect righteousness. He was always obedient, always fulfilling God's law to the letter, doing what Adam, even in his unfallen state, could never do for us, and certainly what none of Adam's fallen offspring could ever do. Christ lived his life to absolute perfection, demonstrating with his very life what the expression righteousness means in human terms, what true righteousness would look like for a human being. But if you further sum up in one adjective what that perfection looked like to those who observed Christ and people who walked with him during his earthly ministry, if you could describe the single most profound and outstanding and surprising feature of Jesus' human righteousness, I think the word you would have to go to would be humble. And that's reflected in our text. We have a powerful glimpse of Jesus' humility as a man. He was a humble man from his birth to his death, the most humble person who ever walked the earth. Here's a second perspective on the glory of Christ I see in our text. Number two, he is a powerful ruler. It almost seems to contradict the first one, doesn't it? But it doesn't. They go together. Christ entered the world just as Micah prophesied in the most humble, unpretentious, ordinary fashion. Well, not really ordinary because it's a great deal more humble than ordinary to have a feeding trough full of hay be your first bed. And yet, Jesus came as a king. Micah calls him the one who is to be ruler in Israel. In Matthew 2, verse 2, the wise men called him, he who has been born the king of the Jews. Now, Spurgeon made a point about that expression that I don't think I've ever considered. He pointed out that in the realm of human government, practically no one is born as a king. In dynasties such as you see in England, they're born princes, the Prince of Wales, you know, they don't become king until the reigning monarch dies, and I don't think she's going to. (laughs) But I suppose it would be possible for an English king to be born to the king's throne if his father died just before his birth, but I don't know that that's ever happened, and it certainly isn't the usual pattern. But in Jesus' case, regardless of these humble circumstances surrounding his birth, All of heaven recognized him as the ultimate royalty, not just a king, but king of kings and lord of lords, and both divine providence and angelic intervention saw to it that he received heaven's honor 
and recognition, even though practically the whole world lay mute in solemn stillness. There was this massive host of angels in Luke 2, verses 13 and 14, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he, with whom He is pleased. There were also foreign dignitaries, the magi, who brought symbolic gifts befitting royalty. I think it's amazing, by the way, that the magi who who were quite accustomed to being in the presence of royalty were not the least bit confused or put off by the fact that they found Jesus in an ordinary house in very humble circumstances without any recognition or praise from the nation over which He reigned. The wise men did not back away from their mission or question the credentials of Christ. They eagerly gave Him the worship that was due Him. That to me is a remarkable thing. I'm convinced by my reading of Scripture that one day yet future, Jesus will literally fulfill His role as King of Kings through an earthly reign from David's throne in Jerusalem. That is yet to come. And I believe that's precisely what we read about in Revelation 20, one of the final chapters of Scripture. Revelation 20 and also Micah chapter 4, that's what that messianic king, the millennial kingdom is all about a host of other Old Testament passages describing the millennial kingdom, which is still yet to come. But don't let your eschatology diminish the position of Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. That is not just some far-off future reality for a different dispensation. Jesus is also reigning right now over a spiritual kingdom from the Father's right hand. And more than that, He was the rightful king of Israel even during his first advent. He was born a king with all power at his disposal even then. And even while he was on trial in front of an earthly king and a Roman governor, he was reigning with full authority over a vast eternal kingdom, which he himself said is a kingdom that is not of this world. Don't miss that point. Don't don't imagine for a minute that being born in such humble circumstances diminished Jesus' kingly power and authority, or that He's still waiting to be given authority on earth. When Paul says in Philippians 2 verse 7 that Jesus made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, he is not saying that the incarnation somehow diminished Jesus' glory or His power. The New American Standard translation of Philippians 2 verse 7 says He emptied Himself. And I really don't like that choice of words. It implies something the text doesn't say. Jesus did not divest Himself of any of His eternal power or attributes. He temporarily laid aside the use of some of those attributes. He cloaked His glory with humanity and with humility, but He didn't actually shed the glory or divest Himself of the power. He didn't lose any of the attributes of His deity. He just didn't use them freely and independently as a man. In other words, although Jesus was fully human, a true man, He remained fully God as well. And the words of our text actually underscore the fact of His deity. And in fact, that is perspective number three that I want to consider with you. First, He's a humble man. Second, He's a powerful ruler. And now third, He is majestic God. And I love the way the deity of Christ is expressed in this phrase, the one whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. 
It stresses the fact that the birth of Christ in Bethlehem was not the beginning of Christ as the Son of God and our Sovereign. He's eternal. He came forth from Bethlehem, but He didn't come from there in the first place. His goings forth are from old, from everlasting, to use the words of the New King James Version. Again, this is an expression that refers to eternity. Notice also that the words of this prophecy are spoken directly by the Father. This is the voice of the Father speaking. Some clear threads of Trinitarian doctrine are woven into the fabric of this text. God the Father is speaking, and in speaking about the one who would come forth out of Bethlehem, He says this, "'From you shall come forth for Me, one who is to be ruler in Israel.'" Don't miss the importance of those two words, "'for Me.'" God the Father is sending this eternal person to be born and to rule and to redeem His people and to make righteousness reign over all the earth. It's all there in this verse. And the language is reminiscent of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. And a host of other similar New Testament expressions, John 10.36, the Father consecrated His Son and sent Him into the world. Galatians 4 verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. 1 John 4 verse 9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And verse 10, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent his Son, to be the propitiation for our sins. And just a few verses later, 1 John 4, 4, we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. That's the gospel, and it's embedded in our text. Christ, God the Son, came to this earth at the behest of God the Father on a mission of mercy and redemption. He calls us to repent of our sins and believe in Him, and He does all the work of redemption Himself. It's not up to us to atone for our own sin. We simply lay hold of His grace by faith. As a humble man, He fulfilled the righteous demands of God in our place, living a perfect life and then bearing the shame and the reproach and the punishment of sin on behalf of all who would ever believe. As a powerful ruler, He exercises dominion over our hearts, and in the case of those who do believe, that means He lovingly manages our sanctification, conforming us to His own likeness. For those who try to live in rebellion against His authority, He will exercise kingly authority in judgment. In the words of John 5, 22 and 23, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. As our glorious God, Christ is supremely worthy of our earnest praise and worship, and that is why we pause each year to remember His birth at Christmas. And I hope you'll see during these coming two weeks and in the year that follows I hope you'll see Him as a humble man and strive to imitate that humility. May you also see Him as a powerful ruler and yield completely to His authority. And let's also acknowledge Him as our glorious God and worship Him with full hearts, confessing that He is in truth King of kings and Lord of lords. 
Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the work of Christ who, as our text says, came forth for you to be ruler in Israel, Lord over our hearts, humble Savior of our souls. So may we trust Him and follow Him with devoted hearts, and may His glory shine in our lives and our testimonies during this holiday season. We pray for His glory and in His name. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson, all rights reserved.